addiction is an interesting word. One is positive. I'm addicted to my family or my passions or my sport or my hobby. It's celebrated as long as it doesn't consume you. I, for one, I'm addicted to my work. Today, I feel like Benjamin Button, a character in the 1922 short story of the same name by F. Scott Fitzgerald about a man who ages in reverse. I'm not physically reversing an age, but I feel mentally I am. My energy and capability today is unlike any other time in my life. And I credit to my work, this crusade I've claimed, where I, in the tiniest of ways, I'm trying to counter the storm and negativity and this growing sense of impossibility with stories about positivity and possibility. Stories of human beings who find a way to overcome often insurmountable circumstances, to chase their dreams, to make things happen, to improve their life for themselves and others. And I think the lessons we learn about their journey are lessons we can apply to help us get to where we want and deserve to go. I don't want to hit pause on what I do. I know that a big part of my motivation is the stage I am in my career, where I have many fewer years left to create and produce than the years I've traveled already. I think I have managed my addiction because I'm disciplined about when I work and when I'm outside of work that the stimulus is around me is so important to take in. Family, friends, mother nature. I am so grateful that I don't have an addiction that takes over my life and everyone around me. I'm not wired by a brain that feeds me all the reasons to provide a slot machine, a quarter, or to bet on a sports game. I don't wake up rationalizing the needs for a substance that alters or numbs me or offers me false courage. I don't borrow beyond my capacity or con others to fuel my habits. And that makes me blessed because those that do fight a lifelong battle. My show today is with Tim Stewart. He's an addict who for the first 40 years functioned. A master at disguise. He was in the Air Force, attended New York State University, and worked at UPS and IBM. Then age 40, he found himself homeless, hopeless, and penniless. Two pairs of pants, two shirts, and about $8 in his pocket. The good life was a thing of the past, and he felt broken, in despair, wondering if it was time to give up on life. He didn't, and the world is much better for it. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Tim Stewart, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so kindly, Tony. I'm very grateful to be here. Love the introduction. Uh, Wow, that's amazing. Tim, we've got so much to unpack, including being homeless at age 40, but I often start these stories at the beginning of a life journey. And when I read about your life as a youth, it was scripted by Hollywood because it had so many different notes. So take me back to your farm and what sounds like a farm that was also a bit of a house of ill repute and everything else is going on in young Tim Stewart's life. Yeah, I'm originally from North Carolina and the farm that I was raised on, my grandfather owned the farm and my grandfather's father was European American. And so my grandfather didn't have to overcome some of the struggles that other Black people did, and he was able to kind of make a lot of progress uh, in, in, in obtaining and owning this land. At the same time, not only on this farm, but we had a general store, a grill, if you will, where we cook food. And then there was a club, a disco club, and then a hotel. When I was grooming, being groomed, you know, from five to 15, I was exposed to a lot of things that 
average kids my age were never exposed to. I watched people and learned how, like my, my history teacher, I would see him at school. He was a different person than in the club on Friday night. So I, I learned how these people, watch these people and learn how they kind of live double lifestyles. But, you know, you're a kid. And, you know, when I was reading about some of your stories, you said, you know, my friends weren't 13, 14 or 15. We weren't, you know, discovering life together. I mean, what was it like to have all of these adult influences? And you said that it really were, we'll go back to the word disguise, that principal on Monday was a very different human being than the person that was wandering into the general store, the grill, the disco, and potentially the hotel. It seemed normal, Tony. The 35, 40-year-old men that worked full-time for my grandfather, and at the end of the day, everybody sat around and they told stories and they smoked cigarettes and they drank alcohol and they told lies, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that was the environment, and, and we know environments matter. You can take a, a mango seed and sit it on your counter that has a gift of a mango tree trapped inside of it. But if on that counter, it'll sit there for 30 years and the tree will never come out because it's in the wrong environment, right? And I was in an environment that wasn't conducive to uh, becoming uh, an acceptable, responsible, productive member of society. They worked you hard, though. I mean, this is a successful farm. You could have probably had a pretty good ride and let everybody else do the labor around you, but that wasn't the way the rules worked in your family. Your, your job was more working on the farm than even getting an education, wasn't it? Absolutely. At the end of the day, uh, the question from my parents was not, did you get all of your homework done? Did you get all of your work done today? And even though my grandfather owned the property, a lot of times instructions were given to me to give to the other men that worked on the farm. But we all got in there together. And, and you know what, Tony? I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of the things that I learned and they taught me, they didn't mean it to be harmful. It worked for them in that era, in that season. They were hardworking men. They provided for their families. Yeah, they might have done things outside of the family that we would consider not moral, but it worked for them. They took care of their homes and they taught me. They taught me how to work. I've never been fired from a job, not just have the ethic to work, but know how to work. I can see things that need to be done without my boss asking me to do them. So there was some positivity you know, happening at the same time. I love what your mom tells you at 16. You've already lived the life of a 30-year-old. Did she see that as a good thing or a bad thing or just, again, the environment you were in? So it was the only thing. It was horrible. <laughs> it was a horrible thing because, and the reason she said that was because I stayed in trouble. I started smoking marijuana at 12 years old. So I was getting into things and situations and circumstances that people, you know, 12 and 13 years old don't get into. I was smoking, I was drinking, I was, you know, uh, having sex with women, uh, you know. You know, there's a lot of argument that marijuana or pot is an addictive, but I know some people at a very young age that discovered it, and instead of using it recreationally, it took them over. And I guess from you, pot became a really a gateway drug to saying, I kind of like being in a different altered state. I mean, you went from pot to a lot of other stuff, didn't you? And, and, and really, it's not about the substance, Tony. When we look at addiction, it's not about a substance. It's about a mindset. What this marijuana did was it allowed me to escape. At first, it was recreational. 
with any kind of substance or uh, addictive behavior, it crosses over a line from recreational use to full-blown addiction. You know, we don't know when we cross that line. And then once we cross that line, we can't go back. Like a pickle could never go back and be a cucumber. It became my way of coping. It was a part of my emotional stability mechanism. Anything that I did not want to feel or did not want to think about, I knew how to escape from that. Another way you seem to escape is that after high school, because I understand as much as you were a bit of a troublemaker, you're quite gifted in terms of learning, you went off and joined the Air Force. Now, that's quite a change from a farm where, you know, you're hanging out with people 25 years older to joining something with the kind of structure the military has. It, it wasn't that big of a transition uh, because there was structure on that farm. And I signed up to go in the military six months before I even graduated high school because I was tired of working on that farm. Work was what my family used to discipline me. I, I was a hyper kid and I didn't even know why I did some of the things that I did. Uh, I, I just had this energy and they didn't know how to channel it. So talk to me about the Air Force. What lesson did you learn there? You might not even known you were learning, but you now apply in your life today. I still iron my shirts the way I did from the military. If you look at my drawers right now, my clothes are rolled up four inches the discipline, the consistency. And what I learned in the military was the way to carry myself in a way that would be respectable, how to address situations that would baffle many people. I could look for an organized way to get to the other side. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I lived an addictive life. You know, I call it a defeated life and I didn't understand what was wrong with me. At one point, I thought that I was really a sick person and I, I thought that the drugs and alcohol were the problem. And what I found out, they were not the problem. My way of thinking was my problem. My guest today is Tim Stewart, a recovering alcoholic, and you'll soon learn, hit the bottom before he could climb his way back. So you leave the military, you come back home with the idea of marrying your high school sweetheart, but drugs once again take you over, don't they? And it progressed. When I went in the military, I had to move away from smoking marijuana, uh, but I substituted for alcohol, very sociably acceptable. And I could buy alcohol at 18 years old because I had a, a green active duty card in my pocket. But you know, when I came back home and the relationship fell with my high school sweetheart, it tore me apart. That relationship ripped my heart right out of my chest when it ended. I'm curious, though, just when that, why, like, someone coming back had the the perspective of the Air Force, had a, a much different look at the world, why your high school sweetheart wouldn't say, this is a person that I want to be part of because they're, they're different than everybody else in my town. My great-grandmother passed away, and I was in Germany. I came home for the funeral and we were engaged to get married. I had, you know, asked her dad for her hands. My parents knew each other when they were growing up. So we, we were a thing. What happened was when I came home, she got pregnant. And of course, I didn't know that at the time. I get back to Germany and two months later, she calls me. and She says, hey, I'm pregnant. And I said, I was excited, Tony. I, I went to talk to my first sergeant, said, hey, my high school sweetheart is pregnant. I want to go home. I want to marry her. Uh, we are already engaged. And he gave me the time to go back home. And when I got there, 
she told me she had had an abortion. Yeah. And there again, there was some pain. And and guess what I knew to do to medicate that pain? Do you still feel that loss today, that person you might have grown up and being something so important to you? You know, Tony, I, I have had my moments with that. But where I'm at today, and I was just sharing with someone last night, what I thought could be the worst thing that could happen to me. I was always a good kid. You know, even though I stayed in trouble, my grandmother said that, that they would take my toys from me when they would take me to the playground because I would give them away. And I would ask God, why? Why did I have to lose everything? But now I understand because I can go into school systems. I can go into rehabilitation facilities and I can talk to them about what it's like to live a lifestyle uh, controlled by addiction, drugs and alcohol. I can identify. And so now I have accepted that my path is a part of my purpose, which has now become my passion. I love what I do. Your mom had to make such a statement about your life and how it was spiraling. She said she, she took a life insurance policy out in your name. Yes. You know, that's a mom thinking that her son is not going to outlive her. Exactly. And I think that was, you know, her way of mentally preparing herself because we were in New York. Not only did we have that farm uh, and that store uh, in North Carolina, but my grandfather also owned a grocery store in Brooklyn, New York. And then we bought a restaurant. So my family had access to resources. And so we were living in New York. And at that time, crack was on the scene really, really strong in New York and in inner cities. And I was running day and night and, and they were worried about me. My lifestyle had just come unglued. Uh, and so my mom was mentally, I think, preparing herself. He's not going to make it. I mean, can you imagine running the streets, Brooklyn, New York, all times of the night? Smoking crack. Take us through that period of, as you called it, functioning as this addict. I mean, you end up working for, you know, you leave the family business. You're working for some fairly substantial businesses and stuff. You get married. I mean, how did you pull all of this off? Because there's, there's only 24 hours a day and there's only so much, even if you've got a family with a lot of resources, there's only so much resources you have to feed your habit. How did you make that time work? Remember, growing up on the farm, I learned some disciplines about working. I could do the work of two men. I learned how to disguise because I started using at such an early age. I learned how to function still loaded. I could be around people and function, outwork my peers and, and be high. Typically, I didn't use during the day. It was always at night. Now, sometimes I only would get an hour, two hours of sleep and go to work for eight hours. But I, I had this ability to learn really quickly. I could pick up on things in different environments. And then, like I said, I didn't have to be micromanaged. You know, I would show up on time. You remind me of my dad, who's no longer with me, but he was bipolar. Those days they called it manic depressive and he self-medicated with alcohol and I can remember him 24 hours a day. He didn't have your discipline about work, so he often lost his job. Did anybody ever think that inside you was this chemistry in your brain that you just could never turn off? Or is it? do you think it was just a substance abuse addiction? We didn't have the information that we have today about addiction back then, you know, in the 80s. Everybody, you know, said, you're so smart. Why don't you just quit? Just stop. Well, they didn't understand addiction. There was... You know, they didn't understand what I was dealing with. I didn't understand what I was dealing with. You know, even though I went to treatment, you know, rehab, rehab 12 times and I, I gathered some information, 
I still thought the drugs and the alcohol were the problem, Tony, but they were not. They were a symptom of the problem. Like a pain in my hand is not the problem. The pain tells me that there is a problem. Well, active addiction is a sign that there is a problem. And the problem was my way of thinking. I did not know how to live. Your grandmother never left your side. I mean, you talk about how she never stopped believing in you. I mean, you must have caused so much pain to your family because they, they saw your talent. They saw your, when you were, you know, sober, when you were alive, they said, this is a gifted individual and it just can't quit. But why do you think your grandmother believed in you so much? Well, I was her first grandchild. It was very, you know, widely known that I was her favorite. I was her first. And she had a relationship with God. Even though other family members would say to her, you know, Cleo, you got to let him go. She would tell them, you know, Jesus didn't let me go, so I'm not letting him go. And I'm telling you, Tony, you know, I get goosebumps when I think about her because she is a reason I'm alive today. The love that she and my grandfather John gave me allowed me to still be here today because had it not been for them, I'm sure the street life would have consumed me. When I had ran two or three days and I hadn't eaten anything and I hadn't taken a bath and I had nowhere to go, I could come home. And you have a very different relationship, love, and thinking about your dad, though, don't you? Yeah. You know, my dad just passed two months ago, and we never had that tight father-son bond or connection. He wasn't raised by his dad. So he, he, he didn't know how to love me the way we typically see father-sons, um, that type of relationship. Of course, I didn't know that when I was younger. I learned that years later. And what I also learned was that my dad gave me the best that he could. That resentment that I had developed turned into respect. My dad was the workingest man I've ever seen. I've never known another man to work the way he works. He taught me that. Is that a lesson in life for people that, you know, at times we resent, we're angry, we don't think we get what we deserve from somebody. But maybe it sometimes it is a passage of time. Sometimes it might be the passing of a life for you to look back and realize, like you're saying now, you know, I now realize he gave the best he could. I now know he gave me gifts that I didn't understand back then when maybe you wanted a hug. Is that a fair lesson for other people to follow that we need to open our minds to even a sliver of a heart sometimes because the whole heart's just not there for us? You know, I'm coming up on 19 years clean and sober. And over the course of the years and working these principles, steps that we call them, is how I learn to look at things from a different perspective. Because it's not the event that causes us to think or feel the way we do. It's our perception of that event. Rational emotive therapy, they call it. When I went back, as I was doing some research and adjusting my thinking, I started, you know, with the help of a sponsor and, 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 and peeling back the layers and really looking at things from a different perspective is when I started gaining that respect for my dad. And, and, and those resentments started fading away. How hard is it to peel back the onion? Because there must be times where you peel back and you feel shame or you feel that you've let people down. I mean, it's, that's got to be the hardest part of recovery. It is. It's called step four, where we do an honest and thorough moral inventory is what we call it. It's suggested that you do not do that alone, that you do that with a sponsor, because it will open up some wounds that um, I've seen it make people go back to active addiction. It, It can be very devastating. 
we come back, Tim Stewart finds himself once again in a situation beyond repair. This time he's on the floor of a homeless shelter. But when he gets up, he takes the first step back to reclaiming his life. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest this week is Tim Stewart, a master of disguise, a functioning addict for 40 years. And then he finds himself homeless, hopeless, and penniless. So Tim, I want us for the audience to get a sense of how far down you fell before you started this climb back. So you've got a a wife now, you've got a daughter, and I think the quote was, I didn't want my daughter to see that her daddy was a crackhead. Yes. And you made a major change in your life with $8 in your pocket and two pairs of pants and a couple of shirts. Take us back to that time, which sounds like it was your turning point. Yeah. You know, that was after my mom had told me she had bought a $10,000 insurance policy uh, to bury me with. And I, and I remember just like it happened yesterday. I went home, I was married and I was put, I, I had a plan. I said, you know what? I've been to rehab 11 times. Let me give it one more shot. You know, because of the connections my family had in New York, I could get people would give me drugs. Right. And they knew they would get the money. I said, I need to get away from everybody and everything. And so I bought this one way ticket to California. And I remember that night before I didn't tell my wife that I was leaving. I didn't even tell my grandmother that I was leaving. And I remember playing with her and just thinking, you know, I've got to leave to be a shot at being a a responsible dad. I've got to go. And so I bought that one way ticket to California. You know, when you get the bus ticket, they have all of the stops and stuff. And I, I got scared. I don't know anybody there. There's gangs there. I don't know where to go. So let me see where else I could go. And the bus stopped in Indianapolis as we changed buses. And when we were ready to board the next bus, I looked up and it had St. Louis on it. And I said, St. Louis. I said, Fred Sanford always talked about going back to St. Louis. I said, that's where I'm going. When I landed at St. Louis at 10 o'clock in the morning, I had $8 in my pocket. I traveled like I had two pair of pants, two shirts, and I had no plan, Tony. When I walked off the bus, it was like a revelation came to me, says, see if they have a military base here. See if they have a rehab center. Luckily, fortunately, I asked somebody, I said, is there a VA hospital around here? But you didn't get right into that vet shelter. I mean, for you, they didn't have a bed for you. So you spent two weeks living on a floor in a homeless shelter. How do you not go back to finding drugs? First of all, I was in so much pain. I had lost again. Now, I have been through rehab. You know, my family has gotten excited. He's going into treatment. He's going to be better now. And I've let them down every time. And now I'm 1,200 miles away from my family. I'm homeless. I'm hopeless. I'm penniless. I'm bankrupt mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. I was so numb that I didn't even feel like crack could even help me. And so I just said, you know what? I came all this way to start over, and I'm going to not do that. You could drop me off anywhere, even today. 
I could find some crack. But I was so devastated and I was in so much pain. I was just kind of numb. I knew that if I put some crack in my body, I was going to get the same thing all over again. So why make this whole trip? At you, when you're in that situation, do you think about your daughter? Do you think about your family? Are they part of the, the sort of the magnetic core that pulls you away from it? Or did you realize that the only way forward was to start believing in yourself? At that point, in the homeless shelter, all I could do was just try to deal with the pain, the emotional pain. Uh, when, when I had the revelation of you know, that now my thinking was what I need to focus on. If I just changed my thinking, I could change my life. And I miss my daughter. She was the catalyst for me. To be honest, Tony, I couldn't think about them at that point. All of my focus had to be on what I need to do about my problem. And hopefully, at some point, those relationships would be restored and I would be a better person for those relationships. At the vet hospital, the homeless shelter, did you find a Yoda, somebody that sort of looked at you and said, you know, I can help you get to where you want to go? Or did you just find it had to be you? What happened, you know, in the in the 12 step pro process, we find somebody that's a sponsor. Uh, that's somebody that can guide us through the 12 steps who has some experience in the programs. And that person was Alan for me. He came out to the VA center to bring a meeting. I saw him and Alan had a clean shaved head and he reminded me, you remember the show Kung Fu? Yeah, David Carradine, yeah. So Alan looked like master. He had a bald head and he had green eyes like master. And I said, man, I wanna get to know this guy. And uh, we're still great friends today. And he helped guide me. He saw some things in me and he wanted to help me because the process of recovery is we, you know, the saying is we can only keep what we have by giving it away. You know, when we go and we share our story with other people, we get to remind ourselves of what the pain is and we help ourselves remain free from active addiction by helping other people. There were some other people. I met my wife, right? Well, she's my ex-wife now, but uh, she believed in me because what happened was once I went through the treatment center at the VA center, I went back to the Salvation Army, but now I was in a different section. They had a special section for veterans where you could work and save your money to prepare to get your own place. So I wasn't, I wasn't in the homeless section. I was now in a section where I had a bed. Now she was working and, and you know, uh, she had a family, she lived with her family. And she did not look at where I was at. She looked at who I was. You know, we got married and we stayed married for 10 years. That's amazing. And when you get back to your daughter and your family, when do they start actually believing that this time it's actually working? It's just happened recently with 19 years clean because, you know, majority of my family, you know, they live in North Carolina. I was the only one out in St. Louis. So, you know, five years after Alicia and I were married, uh, we bought a house and we had a housewarming and my mom and dad and brother came out and they saw the light and they wanted to have hope. Well, since that time, I moved back to North Carolina and we went, Alicia and I divorced and, and I've been here about five years now. Now they, they see it, it. So it didn't happen overnight. It took a long time because they have been let down so many times. What's your relationship like with your daughter nowadays? Believe it or not, Tony, uh, I have two daughters. 
uh, my oldest daughter, the one that was a catalyst, uh, we don't even have a relationship. And that's a that's a long story. Uh, there was a lot of damage done there on my part, uh, on her mother's part, right? Um, and, you know, kids don't, I'll just say this, kids don't develop that level of resentment on their own. It's learned. That must be tough on you. It, you know, I accepted it. That's part of one of these principles. These 12 principles that I practice and coach and promote, um, they, I still practice them today. They are so valid in every area of my life. You know, I had to get to the point for the first five years I was clean. I reached out to her. I tried to develop an open line of communication with her and, you know, back to my sponsor. And I said, you know, every time I talk to her, it hurts me because she doesn't, want to talk to me. She only calls me and she wants something. And he said, you know what he said to me, Tony? He said, Tim, maybe when she hears from you, it creates so much pain in her. You're only thinking about you. What about her? It may hurt her to hear your voice because you weren't there for so many years. The reality is I wasn't. And he said, you know, let her know that she can always contact you, but stop trying to push it on her. And it was kind of like I got a revelation that God never forces himself into anyone's life. And I stopped forcing it. Today, she can call me anytime she feels the need to, and I'm there for her. But as far as me, you know, she's she's doing well. She's a nurse and, and she's a, a responsible, productive member of society. No addictions to drugs and alcohol. Uh, so I'm pretty proud of her, but we don't have that close relationship. And how about your youngest daughter? We do have an open line of of communication. She is from Grand Turk. So she lives in Turks and Caicos Island. And, you know, her mom is British West Indian. And and we do have a good rapport. Uh, We do talk often. Uh, She has a son now. So I have a a little grandson. And they call him Talk Man Talk Jr. (laughs) You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Hello, my name is Tim Stewart, and I have been able to transform my life. And I would like to help you do the same. As Talk Man Talk, I speak to inspire, motivate, and educate people from every walk, focusing on three key disciplines, goal-setting techniques, addiction recovery, and principles of spirituality, all firmly grounded on the philosophy, everything counts. My guest today is Tim Stewart, recovering alcoholic, who for the past 19 years has been sober. And the lessons he offers are lessons in life for all of us. Well, let's talk about Talk Man Talk. I want the audience to know how beautiful you are as a human being and how you realize is that, and you sort of hinted at it earlier in the interview, a higher purpose and a higher calling. And that's to take context and circumstance and everything that's been inside you, the pain and the, and the perceptions and the environment, and you've become something special. So talk to me about your platform and what brings you so much joy. Well, at five years clean, I had never been clean that long, Tony. And I remember, you know, it was one Saturday morning, I got up and Alicia and I had bought the home, you know, a quarter of a million dollar home. I had gone from the overflow, sleeping on the floor to a homeowner. And it was a Saturday morning, I had my coffee, and I was like, wow, man, five years clean. What am I going to do now? And I had this revelation. Hey, you always like sharing information. Won't you be a speaker? I said, yeah, I can be a speaker. And I've always been a Michael Jordan fan. And so when Michael came into the league, he was jump man jump. I said, I'm going to be talk man talk. 
<laughs> and here's what I coach, Tony. Everything comes to this planet with a gift trapped inside of it, including you and I, everything. What you're doing right now is your gift. When I had that revelation of being a speaker, I remember being back in first and second and third grade, and I stayed in trouble. Guess why I stayed in trouble? Talking too much. Talking in class. <laughs> <laughs> I had the gift when I got here. A bird has the gift of flight when it lands here. Nobody puts flight in a bird. Everything was created for a purpose that has potential to function by principles. Everything. Everything functions by law that guides our decision-making process, empowering us to live a lifestyle of integrity and morality. Every product in our home has a law. It comes with a manual, and in that manual it says, do these things, do not do this. Those are laws. And if you violate those laws, the benefits and the consequences are built in. That's my mission today as Talk Man Talk is to help people develop a consciousness of these principles, these 12 principles, honesty, hope, faith, courage, integrity, willingness, humility, discipline, forgiveness, acceptance, awareness, and gratitude that are valid in every room, the locker room, the classroom, the boardroom, the living room, even the bedroom. These 12 principles is what saved my life and what helps me maintain my freedom from active addiction. Laws create culture. What's the purpose of a law? To create order. The absence of law is what? Disorder. That's what was happening in my life. When you're going into homeless shelters, when you're looking somebody in the eye, you must see a younger Tim sometimes. Because of what I've gone through and, and, and I look at it as divine, you know, I'm able to do what I do today because of what I've gone through. See, when I discovered my purpose, when we discover our purpose is the same for any, then we'll know what direction to take. The purpose is the path for destination, right? And so a lot of people, and, and it was true for me, had a great destiny, uh, but I got dragged off on an exit ramp behind a craving or lust. I've gotten back on the highway. I'm grateful for every little thing. When I go to the bathroom and turn the water on, I'm like, wow, I got running water because I remember when I didn't have it. I haven't forgotten what it's like to sleep on the street. When I was younger and my daughters were five or six and, and I saw somebody on the street and I said, go give them a dollar, but don't just put it in the pail and walk away. You look them in the eye, you say hello, you say good morning. They reminded me of that a while ago and I was just so moved that that lesson had stayed with them. What lesson can you offer my listeners in terms of when they see homeless they pe see people on the street that are suffering from addictions or mental illness. What, what advice do you give them in terms of opening their eyes and seeing that inside that veneer, there is a human being? You know, the, the number one thing is, you know, a lot oftentimes we, we think that our actions will benefit someone unless we have a conversation. We don't know what would benefit them. Just because I give somebody some money doesn't mean that that's the best thing for them. They may want a, a ride to a place to stay. To your point, have a conversation. Understand what they may be needing, what may be the best help for them. I am fortunate where I can go down in the inner city and I can talk, have a conversation with Joe Blow the Wino, if you, if you want to use that term. Um, but I can also put on a suit and go and sit down and talk to the mayor. And what I've discovered is that we're all human and we all need each other. 
You know, this system called life was designed for us to live interdependently, not independently. My last question for you, Tim, is your mom never got to cash in her life insurance policy. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) And your grandmother's looking down from heaven. What do you think they're saying about the son and the grandson, Tim Stewart? Uh, I, I just saw my mom this past weekend and, you know, my mom is really proud of me. You know, she she's she doesn't get overexcited about it, but she's proud of the work that I do. You know, the one that she thought was going not going to make it. Let me tell you something. You know, from the family that we come from, uh, for me to live the lifestyle that I live, it was very embarrassing for her. And now she doesn't have to worry about that. You know, Tim, I always lend my podcasts and my three key takeaways. And the first one is never giving up. And it's not just you never giving up. It was that grandmother that never gave up on you. The second one is the sense of environment. And I love your analogy of the mango seed that would stay on a shelf forever, but in the right environment glows into a mango tree. And I think it's so important for us to look around at each other and say, what can I do to improve your environment? And you gave me an incredible lesson in life. It's not just money that matters. It's freely understanding what's going on in front of the person you're in front of is where you can be the greatest help. And I guess the third thing is just your ability to be so honest about the many sides of Tim Stewart. You know, the, the growing up as a kid, the influences, the drugs, the crack, the addictions, the the homelessness, the pain of, you know, with your oldest daughter and all of these things that come out. And I think that that honesty, that humility, that grace is something that is often missing in society where we try to put on the face that we want other people to see. So I'm glad that that disguise that was ripped off you years ago and 19 years sober. And uh, I'm just so, so touched that you're being uh, part of the show today. I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you very kindly, Tony. I have enjoyed being here. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how grateful I am you know, to have a conversation with you. Um, You know, your time is very valuable, so I don't take that for granted. So thank you very kindly. Joining me now is the Vice President, Social Impact and Innovation at RBC, Mark Beckles. Mark's opinions on having a positive impact are sought after in Canada and around the world. Mark, welcome back to Chat of the Matters. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me. So Tim Stewart's story is sadly one that's played out many times. Substance abuse begins as a way of an escape and becomes a way of life. He has an advantage of having military training and discipline, so he hides it for many years. But he wakes up one day at age 40, homeless, penniless, and letting all that love him down once again. So you spent a lot of your time in future launch. And I'm saying, I'm not suggesting that everybody out there has similar problems, but a lot of what you do is to try to help youth find the right path in life. Tell me a little bit about the work you're doing. And is this the kind of work that would have helped Tim Stewart if he had had a chance to be part of future launch years ago? I just want to express sincere thanks uh, to Tim for his service to the country by way of his military service. It is a sacrifice that way too often uh, we as ordinary citizens don't appreciate. Uh, But to the Tims of this world, I just want Tim to know how grateful we are for his uh, service. 
it really speaks to uh, the issue uh, around mental health uh, supports and services, which is a key pillar of RBC Future Launch. RBC Future Launch focuses on ensuring that young people are prepared with 21st century skills, that they have access to practical work experience, that they have access to job-ready networks. And if we do all of that and not focus on the mental health of young people, all of that human capital that we invest in comes undone at the point of mental health crisis. And so it is vitally important for young people to be able to have access to the kinds of supports and services they need to ensure that they can preserve their mental health. And when they're feeling mental stress, to know where to turn to and whom to turn to when they need support. You know, we've talked in the past about youth that have found themselves in underserved communities that have passion, they have heart, but they're beaten back with either the only way out is being a gifted athlete or sort of dropping out and maybe being attracted to organized crime or other ways in which, you know, at times it's just simply to put groceries on their tables. What's Future Launch doing in the underserved neighborhoods to let youth know that there are other paths out, even if you can't dunk like Vince Carter? One of the things that we have learned through the execution of RBC Future Launch is the whole concept of equity. And equity acknowledges there cannot be a one-shoe-fits-all approach to community investment. And far too often, we as corporate donors talk about the work that we do without recognizing that how we do the work makes all the difference in terms of creating social inclusion and shared uh, value for all. And what do I mean by that? Well, the more barriered and the more marginalized that young people are, and indeed uh, others across society are, the more intentional we have to be about ensuring that we provide the right structures, the right enablers to create a level playing field so that everyone has a chance at success. And that is the work of equity. And when we think about Canada, and certainly the urban centers within our country are going to be increasingly more diverse by the end of this decade. There's going to be a greater need to ensure that we focus on inclusion, how we create social uh, inclusion. Well, one of the keys to that is understanding the differentiated needs that uh, diverse communities uh, have, or those that identify as diverse have, to begin to create those level playing fields for people so that it shouldn't require you to be able to hop a ball faster or throw a ball farther or hit a ball farther. Uh, it should actually depend on what special supports do you need as an individual uh, that philanthropic organizations and, and, and corporate organizations can support you with to create that level playing field. Diversity is the what. Inclusion, supported by equity, is the how we create equitable social value. If you look back at your, your career to date and the work you're doing in the sense of social impact and innovation, is there one thing that stands out that you'd say, that's something I'm the most proud about? Working for an organization like RBC that you know, recognizes that it's not a bank that is a purpose-driven company, but a purpose-driven company that happens to be a bank 
and allows us to sort of live our purpose by way of how we support our clients, our shareholders, our employees, and our community. And, and to do so through programs like Future Launch gives me a source of pride as an employee, uh, as a sort of community leader. I do this as part of a much broader team committed to and bound by that purpose statement of helping clients thrive and communities prosper. Mark, I'm proud to have you on Chatter That Matters because I know how important this work is and how much you value it and how much your team loves working with you to put a positive dent in the universe. So thank you for joining me on uh, Chatter That Matters. Thank you for having me and thank you for telling our stories in the way that you do. But more importantly, thank you for your partnership and your commitment to creating social value in this country. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.